Up next is Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Pete's Ponderings is a selection of Pete's candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis, taken from his show, Afternoons. Listen to the live broadcast of Peter Williams' Afternoon Show at 1pm, Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays, right here on RCR, Reality Check Radio. This is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on Reality Check Radio. Coming up, some thoughts on MPs' behaviour at select committees and also on how the number of journalists in media companies is decreasing and what that means. But first, I want to talk about education. And old guys like me should never talk about the good old days uh, because, well, we shouldn't. But when I heard about the Labour Party policy on class sizes at schools, I'm afraid I could only guffaw. In this staggeringly innovative move, Labour intends to reduce teacher ratios in years four to eight, or in the old money standard two to form two, uh, from one teacher to 29 students down to one to 28. Uh, Now, I'm of the generation that survived primary school in generally well-behaved classrooms, where there were sometimes up to 40 kids in the class. What's even more hilarious is that back in 2014, the Labour Party promised to reduce the ratio uh, down to 1 to 26. So in nine years, nearly six of which they have been in government, they haven't achieved their target. So now, well, they're just reducing their ambition. It's as if they know they couldn't deliver a pizza. So let's set a ridiculously unambitious target for two years down the track and see where it lands. Uh, The Minister of Education, herself a former primary school principal, says this is the way that achievement levels will be lifted. Uh, That's a ludicrous statement because, as anybody knows, whether or not there are 29 or 28 kids in the class just won't make a difference to achievement. What will make a difference is a return to learning knowledge, how to add and subtract, how to spell, how to read, how to think, and not having a curriculum which is child-centred and child-led. Basics. Basics worked well for generations and produced world-class results for many, many years. The current system, obviously, is not. To get better results, there needs to be a damn sight more than just tinkering with teacher-pupil ratios. Now, if your impression of members of Parliament is low, it'll be even lower. After the reports of two Southland mayors and their interaction with a parliamentary select committee recently... And Nobby Clark of Invercargill and Rob Scott of the Southland District both fronted up to the Water Services Select Committee in Wellington on the 3rd of March. Nobby had the chair of the committee in person. Everybody else, though, was on Zoom. Rob Scott and his chief executive, they were in the beehive talking to an entire committee who were on video conference. Uh, Mr Scott is diplomatic with his reaction when he says, uh, maybe my definition of good faith is different to theirs. Well, now that the water services legislation is being rejigged, there will have to be more submissions. But Nobby Clark says he doubts he'll go through the process again after last time. Get this, having committee members get up to get a coffee while he was in the act of submitting. Another spent time on her cell phone during the entire hearing. And another left early to catch a flight. The chair of the committee then, uh, Rachel Brooking, who's now a cabinet minister, she has the temerity to say there is no formalised etiquette 
covering the use of cell phones in select committee hearings. Dear me, well, there may well be no formalised etiquette, but what about this thing called manners and courteous behaviour? Obviously, MPs just can't be bothered. What a farce. What arrogance. Members of Parliament are there to serve the public. If they can't be bothered doing that, then maybe they should just get out. Well, there has been considerable gnashing of teeth among the community of old journalists about the impending change of name at Wellington's daily newspaper. But among the stories emerging is the staggering decrease in the number of journalists who work in the print media these days compared to the past. Uh, In the days when there was both a Dominion and an Evening Post, and I was living in Wellington at the time, so I remember those days well, uh, the company which owned both the papers, INL, Independent Newspapers Limited, employed in all about 400 journalists. Nowadays, the entire Stuff company has about the same number, 400 journalists, from Auckland to Invercargill. Uh, A report commissioned by the Ministry for Culture and Heritage says the number of journalists in media companies in the country has more than halved between 2000 and the year 2018. But get this, in the last five years since Labour became the government, the number of communications staff employed by the public service has risen 50%. So we know where the former journalists have gone to work and they're probably being paid a whole lot more as well. Health New Zealand, or Te Whatu Ora, has 173 people on staff working in communications and another 26 contractors. What do they do? And why are there so many of them when we're so desperately short of doctors and nurses? Like like many industries in this country, the media is in a desperate state. The flow of information, though, from government and government organisations is controlled by this army of spin doctors. And he or she who controls the information flow, controls the power. And that is a sad reflection of a so-called democracy. Uh, When you read those numbers, those facts, changing the name of an increasingly irrelevant Wellington newspaper, frankly, is the least of the industry's issues. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Now, this is a good news story of sorts. It's a bad news story for those who drive regularly. Uh, I drive Highway 8 alongside Lake Dunstan in central Otago pretty often because it's my main road into town, into, into Cromwell. One lane of the road is closed at the moment because there are new power poles being put in and the stop-go lights uh, control the traffic. It's very frustrating. It's a feeling that so many people have around the country at the moment because traffic management is the new growth industry of this century, I'm sure. Road cones, orange high-vis jackets, stop-go systems, well, they're just now a part of life, aren't they? And it's annoying as hell. But it has made some people a lot of money. A company called Wilson's Traffic Management, started by the husband and wife team of Sam Wilson and Gabby Craws only three years ago, has just been sold to an Australian outfit for $13.7 million. Uh, The company made a $3.2 million profit before tax last year. They're based in Christchurch. They also have depots in Nelson and Queenstown. They employ 134 staff and proudly say on their website that they have placed in their three years of existence 602,855 road cones. 
Well, that was the number they put up a couple of days ago. No doubt it's a lot more than that now. Look, I always congratulate a business success story, and this couple have done extraordinarily well from startup to a multi-million dollar sale in just three years. But they've certainly been helped, surely been helped by the, the country's ultra-cautious health and safety regime and, of course, by the dreadful quality of our roads, which keep on needing repairs and, therefore, traffic management. Wednesday afternoon with Peter Williams. There's a really interesting piece doing the rounds at the moment by a guy called Trevor Richards. Uh, From about 1971 to 1985, Trevor Richards could probably lay claim to being New Zealand's most hated man, although it must be said he was loved by many as well. He was chairman of Heart, Halt All Racist Tours. It spent the best part of 15 years protesting over New Zealand rugby's ties with South Africa in the apartheid era. Now, Trevor Richards writes that 50 years ago this month, April of 1973, the anti-tour movement had its biggest success when the Prime Minister of the time, Norman Kirk, cancelled a planned Springbok rugby tour of New Zealand. He broke an election promise because police had told him they wouldn't be able to control the likely protests. You might say it was the first time this country submitted to the rule of the mob. Uh, I remember the time well. It didn't go down well, and the Labour Party lost the next election. They were thumped uh, two and a half years later in 1975. Anyway, it's a nice piece of nostalgia written by Trevor Richards. But on the same day that I read that, I also read a piece in The Spectator on modern-day South Africa. The one the protesters marched in the streets to set free from the apartheid regime. And here's a piece from the story in The Spectator. Quote, ANC, African National Congress ruled South Africa, is a state driven by critical race theory ideology. The result has been economic decline, decades of legacy infrastructure leading to electricity shortages, rape and murders at a level exceeding war zones, and a general sense of decline around the country. South Africa is descending to failed state status under ANC rule, unquote. Now, you cannot turn back history, of course, and there was only one Nelson Mandela, wasn't there? But it makes you wonder, were the anger and the arguments of 1973 and the subsequent violence of 1981 really worth it? When you read about that, when you read about the state of South Africa in 2023, gee, there's a few issues inside the Green Party, aren't there? Only a few days ago, a provisional list had uh, Elizabeth Kedikedi up at number four. Then she called someone else in the Green Caucus a cupcake. Uh, It was probably Chloe Swarbrick, even if uh, Kedikedi denies it was Swarbrick. Uh, but now some more people inside the Greens say that Elizabeth Kedikedi undermines and bad mouths her caucus colleagues and staff on a regular basis, all of which is absolutely remarkable considering that she's a rookie, she's a first-term MP. The real issue seems to be that the Green Party is split in two, those for whom sexual and ethnic identity is a big deal. They, they deal in identity politics like Keddy Keddy and Ricardo Menendez March, and those for whom the environment and other social justice issues are the main reason for being people like James Shaw and Julianne Genta, all of which makes for a really messy situation 
six months out from an election. Uh, The Greens reached 7.9% in the 2020 election. That's why they've got 10 seats. In recent polls, they've been hovering around 10 and 11%, a number I find remarkably high. In fact, I think it's terrifyingly high. Perhaps the exposure of this schism brought about by Elizabeth Keddy Keddy's behaviour will lead to a drop in support. I certainly hope so. You're listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. I note that King Charles' PR team has been on the case big time. Uh, Just a couple of weeks out from the coronation, there's been a huge article published about his eating and his exercise habits in the London Daily Telegraph. It's been reprinted in New Zealand, in the Herald, and probably in countless other papers around the world as well. Uh, We find out that King Charles walks a lot, he eats well, he avoids fish and meat two days a week, and he avoids dairy on a third, and he doesn't do lunch. He works right through. Uh, I don't know, therefore, when he'd ever eat the special coronation quiche, the recipe that he and Camilla are sharing with us in honour of the big day on the 5th of May. Apparently, he does his best to avoid drinking water during the day as well so that he doesn't have to pop off uh, for unscheduled loo stops. But like his mother, he does like a little snifter in the early evening, usually a dry martini. Good for him. He turns 75 this November. He's very keen, it's reported, to be the first reigning monarch to live to 100 The chances are high, I would have thought. His genes are good. His father died at 99, his mother at 96, and his grandma, the dear old queen mum, uh, she made it all the way to 101. So based on that, the odds are pretty good that Charles will raise his bat for a century, which I reckon is great. Stability, consistency, and continuity in our head of state is a great asset to a country, to Britain, and to New Zealand. Uh, King Charles has waited long enough Now he deserves a good long reign. This is Reality Check Radio. I note that a Napier mother achieved, well, a significant amount of almost instant fame yesterday with her TikTok post about how it's hardly worth going back to work because of the cost of childcare. She reckons that if she gets a job like the one she had before kids, paying around about $35 an hour, it'll cost her about $26 an hour for childcare. She has three children, a two-year-old and 10-month-old twins, and reckons that if she works full-time and pays for childcare, she'll only have about $170 a week left over, and then goes on about all the extra hassles of working with the kids in childcare. Uh, The hassles like drop-offs and pickups and doing meals and housework as well. Her final line was, it makes you wonder if it's all worth it. This woman, Anna Catley, of course, is facing the dilemma that thousands of women, thousands of families have had for years. So if I could give Anna some advice from an old grandfather, don't go back to work for a year or two yet. Enjoy your young kids. Do you really want your twins in childcare before they're a year old? You know, in the course of a working life that might be 40 years or more, Does it really matter if you miss two or three of them? I tell you what, your kids will thank you, Anna, for being around more. Is that an old-fashioned patriarchal attitude to modern-day parenting? Probably, but you know, I make no apologies. 
parents are way better raisers of children than daycare centres are. Now, was John Tamahiri trying to wind us all up yesterday with his claim that Māori own water? And then he claims that non-Māori have stolen it and that Māori want it back. I mean, frankly, it's preposterous nonsense, isn't it? Is water really any different to the air that we breathe or the sun that shines? Of course it can't be. It's a naturally occurring source of life on Earth which everyone is entitled to access. New Zealand, as I have said many times, has plenty of it. As a nation, we are never short of water. 95% of what falls from the sky over our fair land flows out to sea. Our problem is that we don't have consistently good infrastructure to reticulate clean, healthy water to everyone all the time. And we struggle to dispose of it when it rains too heavily. That's why there needs to be such a huge investment in water infrastructure, not in water itself. There's plenty of that stuff. We just need more and better pipes to get it around. And we need to find the best way to pay for it. Putting ethnicity into a debate about pipes, about water infrastructure, frankly, is divisive and unhelpful. Māori do not have any more special interests in water than anyone else. We need some strong-willed politicians and judges, frankly, in the courts to put an end to this nonsense. All capability in legislation for Māori or iwi to charge non-Māori for water use must be done away with. Where are those strong-willed politicians and the judges prepared to make these hard calls? That is the Peter Williams Afternoon Show for a Wednesday. Thank you for your company. I look forward to talking with you again on Friday. Have a great evening, everybody. You've been listening to Pete's Ponderings on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Remember, you can catch Pete's full show combining smooth sounds and candid commentary on everyday issues for Kiwis and the Peter Williams Afternoon Show on our live broadcasts 1pm Mondays, Wednesdays and Fridays right here on RCR Reality Check Radio